I'm Elaine Hagee, Senior Grants Officer at the Virginia Historical Society, and it's my pleasure today to introduce our next speaker. After completing her bachelor's degree at Millbury College, Sarah Gregg studied at Columbia, where she earned her PhD in 2004. She taught history at Iowa St State University and served as a postdoctoral fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Presidential Library before becoming a visiting assistant professor of history at the University of Kansas. Her work addresses the intersections between the environment and agriculture in federal policy, and in particular, the ways in which people and ideas about nature have reshaped the landscape. Her first book, Managing the Mountains, Land Use Planning, the New Deal, and the Creation of a Federal Landscape in Appalachia, was published by Yale University Press in 2010. Blending an analysis of agricultural practices, environmental impacts, and state formation within the context of the Virginia and Vermont mountains, Sarah traced the origins of federal land use programs in the Appalachia Mountains during the 1910s and 20s, and their implications during the expansion of federal planning in the New Deal and beyond. New Deal President Franklin Delano Roosevelt once said, a nation that destroys its soil destroys itself. Forests are the lungs of our land, purifying the air and giving fresh strength to our people. Her recent research has been on the expansion of federal agricultural aid policies from the mid-19th century to the present. Please welcome Dr. Sarah Gregg, who will speak to us on the topic, Managing the Mountains, Land Use Planning, the New Deal, and the Creation of a Federal Landscape in Appalachia. Thank you very much. And I want to just take a moment first to congratulate the Virginia Historical Society and the Virginia Environmental Endowment for such a fantastic program. I've both learned a lot from the papers or the presentations I've seen so far, and I am very impressed to see such a dynamic and vibrant community here in Richmond. So enjoy uh, the rest of today, as I'm sure that I will. Um, so I am, in fact, talking uh, about material from my book, Managing the Mountains, but I figured, like Ben Cohen, I would spin this a little bit more towards the Virginia scene. And so my bigger project um, took on the issue of federal, um, state and federal land use change um, over the course of the early 20th century. And um, in particular, I looked at cases in the mountains of Vermont and the mountains of Virginia both of which I characterize as Appalachian, although of course people in New England don't often think of themselves as Appalachian folk, and people in uh, the South uh, don't often think about um, the two areas as being combined, but I really see some continuities along the Appalachian uh, range, which runs, as many of you probably know, from Alabama all the way into Quebec. Um, so it is, in some senses, an international mountain range. Um, so I'm talking, like I said, on Virginia and the creation of the Shenandoah National Park, but this project, or this is part of a much larger project that traces these regional changes. One of the things I want to present you with in terms of the big ideas that I confronted in this project is the fact that perceptions of nature, as well as the value of what we now think of as green space and recreation, 
as well as the ideas that have evolved over the course of the last century about the obligations of society to uplift the less fortunate were just as real in the early 20th century as they are today. Um, and I, look, um, I looked at the role of both local boosters and bureaucrats in changing the landscape of Appalachia, as well as the place or the role played by in economic development alongside environmental protection, which back in the early 20th century people talked about as conservation rather than environmentalism or environmental protection per se. So um, that sort of theme uh, plays out throughout my work. And as many of you know, we are in fact here in Virginia. And so you should know, I hope, the Blue Ridge province um, pretty well. But what I'm actually talking about is the sort of northernmost section of the Virginia Blue Ridge, the northwestern part of Virginia. And this is a place that in 1925, the Secretary of the Interior, Hubert, Hubert Work, described as, in the very heart of civilized America lies preserved for our use a bit of nature that is identical with the virgin territory found by Captain John Smith and his heroic followers. Talk about segues from the last talk. Its very inaccessibility has kept it intact. And so this was the perception of basically the manager of the nation's public lands, um, the, the Secretary of the Interior, and of many of the planners who approached um, the possibility of Appalachia as a, a green space, as sort of a forested um, primeval environment where people from the cities and the growing urban areas could find both recreation and solitude, if you will. But of course, this was a much more complicated place than that. Um, and so although work talked or gave that speech about five miles from this farm, he and many of the other people who were sort of encapsulating Appalachia, and particularly the Blue Ridge as virgin territory, um, were ignoring this long legacy of human inhabitation and land use and agriculture in the mountains. Now, arguably, this does not look like the easiest farm. <laughs> uh, those of you who have worked in agriculture, perhaps in the Piedmont or the Shenandoah Valley, know that land doesn't look quite like this with all of the boulders and the rocks. And here you can see, perhaps, um, some people standing on some of the larger boulders on this farm. Um, but this pattern of relatively small clearings and small farms uh, crossed the entire mountain range from basically from uh, New England all the way down to Alabama. And in Virginia, uh, in particular, I found that there was not as much of an industrial legacy and that this was truly an agricultural land. Um, obviously, there was logging in, in some small area or in some areas relatively small-scale logging as opposed to the, what we saw further south, but most of the clearing was taking place on an agricultural basis. Now, the idea for um, a national park in Virginia was based in the notion that there was this, like I said, this virgin territory accessible to the big centers of population um, along the eastern seaboard. And this, the Shenandoah project emerged as part of a competition of sorts among a number of southeastern states and communities as they all sought essentially economic development through national parks creation as well as um, a means of easily conserving 
um, vulnerable lands. And so part of the pitch for the parks, the Blue Ridge and the Smokies were the two that emerged first, the Great Smoky Mountain National Park um, emerged as the first national parks in the, in the east. Uh, well, no, that's not true. The first uh, sort of hmm, <laughs> federally initiated national parks in the east because up in Maine on Mount Desert Island, some land had been donated to the Park Service in the 1920s. Um, but, but the Shenandoah and the Smoky Mountains were sort of created out of a, a mission uh, laid out by Congress back in 1924 as they delegated a committee to seek out ideal parklands. And so this idea, this vision, if you will, for uh, national, national parks in the East um, originated in 1924 in part through the advocacy of a man by the name of George Freeman Pollock. And so some of you who've gone to the Shenandoah may have visited Skyland. Um, Skyland is one of the uh, you know, areas where you can take a, a cabin and stay for the night. Well, Skyland was Pollock's resort, and he was both deeply connected to the mountains and eager to see their preservation, and so more on him later. Um, he, like work, like Hubert Work, was committed to presenting the mountains as an uninhabited landscape in spite of the fact that he worked closely and frequently um, with mountain residents in order to maintain his, uh, his resort. And he was located right around here, um, not so far from Thornton Gap or Lee Highway, which goes, uh, travels across the mountains. And this is an area that is, was bisected, was and is bisected by centuries-old roads. Earlier, Indian trails like Spotswood Trail and Lee Highway that then were turned into state roads um, later in, uh, into the 20th century. And there were also um, mountains that were, of course, as I've said, inhabited by both families and their farms for um, certainly decades, in some cases centuries. And I'll talk about some of the dynamic within the mountains in a moment. So what I want to talk about in terms of family uh, history, if you will, is this area here on this map um, within Madison County, Virginia. Now, this original land um, or the original layout, that red boundary line, called for about 500,000 acres um, as part of the Shenandoah National Park. And Congress had stipulated that this would be a big park. Um, as you see, if you know the, the mountain region well, this is an area far wider than just the Blue Ridge. It encompassed it, both um, good farmlands and, um, and, you know, basically stretched almost to the Shenandoah River in some portions of its layout. That park never came to be, and in fact, that 500 and some thousand acres ended up today being about a 190,000 acre park, and we'll look at the boundaries of that a little bit later. What I'd like to suggest, though, is that a closer look at both the nature and the culture of land use um, in the mountains is illustrative of both the diversity and the dynamism um, within uh, mountain communities in the parks, in the park, what would become the park. And the areas that I looked at most closely in an attempt to gauge the human impacts um, on the mountain lands were here, so this last map shows Old Rag Mountain, which many of you may be familiar with. Um, just above the community of Old Rag, there are two um, 
hollows, if you will, Corbin Hollow and Nicholson Hollow, which are some of the most popular hiking trails in the park today. And what is interesting is that Corbin Hollow was relatively recently settled as of the 1920s when federal and state attention began to be directed towards the park, um, towards the region. And it was populated by people who had basically been pushed off of lo more lowland areas, including Nicholson Hollow, because of population pressures and because new families started and people were looking for opportunity. But it also was basically feeding the labor force for George Freeman Pollock's Skyland Lodge. And so the people living there were vulnerable. Um, they worked seasonally. They didn't really farm very much. If they did, they farmed a quarter of an acre, had some land in corn or in cabbage, but they weren't making a living per se. They were really wage laborers. And they were, of course, ultimately, once the human dimension of the Blue Ridge became more well-known, they were the focus of a lot of federal attention and state attention and ultimately were sort of the poster children of the park, even though they were in many senses um, unrepresentative. That's one of the things that um, I talk about at some length in the book. Well, so here is perhaps not the most typical Corbin cabin, if you will, um, but this is representative of sort of the larger arch architectural um, sort of state of things in the mid-1930s, so after some of these people were moved out of the park. More on that later. And here is another Corbin Hollow. This is the barn, um, and I think this is like the chicken shed, perhaps. So we've got some really um, marginal people here um, who were, like I said, relying as much on wage labor as on agriculture. And I want to contrast Corbin Hollow with Nicholson Hollow, which as you can see from reading this contour map, show is a much wider and um, lower, in terms of elevation, um, hollow landscape. And you can see the results of that in the more sturdy, more durable, older buildings um, in which Corbin, um, Nicholson Hollow farmers resided. And here you see um, corn, here you see cleared land well behind the farm as people had logged this, these mountains um, periodically for generations, both for firewood and for sale. Um, and here we have another Nicholson Hollow farmer drying apples on his roof. And those apples, of course, indicate that there were orchards, and rather bounteous orchards, um, and that these farmers were preserving their crops systematically. And so Nicholson Hollow, though it didn't get a lot of attention from the national news media, which did, in fact, descend on the Blue Ridge in the 1930s, um, again, more on that later, it did sort of resemble, to a greater extent, agriculture in the lowlands. Um, and so demonstrates that both, that, that, that sort of the mountain region um, presented an image of mixed land uses as well as diverse economic and social uh, backgrounds. And so here is a barn um, in Nicholson Hollow, overflowing, if you will, with seasonal produce. One of the things that I found so interesting is in doing research for this project was that there was a, a great deal of uh, diversity as well in the responses of the people who both lived in the designated park area and who contributed to the park project. Um, as they thought about the valuation of work, of land use, and of um, sort of a, a sense of place. 
And so this letter comes from a tenant farmer in the mountains who knew, whose name was Wal Walker Jenkins, Walter or Walker, depending on, uh, on the record. And he, was, he farmed 11 acres. He had a rather large family. Um, somewhat unrepresentatively, he was one of only a few people who were evicted from the park forcibly um, back in the mid-1930s. And uh, we'll actually get a story of another evictee a little bit later. The only two stories of the farmers that you're going to get. Please do not get the sense that everybody was forcibly evicted. But many people were, in fact, um, disinclined to leave their mountain farms. And so what, what um, Jenkins uses as evidence of the viability of his farm um, was this story, he says, you know, the letter is pleading um, to federal and state officials for, um, to allow him to stay on his farm. And at one point he says, um, this year I will make 250 bushels of corn, um, 150 bushels of potatoes, 100 bushels of beans, as well as raise my own cows and hogs. And there is this narrative throughout the literature created by the people of the park of sustainability, of viability, of a sense of connectedness to the land that was um, overlooked either um, intentionally or incidentally by both the state officials who pushed for the park and the federal officials who signed off on its creation. And so those of you, uh, who know much about the history of the park, who've been to the museums or have read about it in the past, know that Virginia both solicited the creation of a national park in the Blue Ridge and bought the land to, um, to donate it to the federal government. And so much of the language, um, even today, among the children of the Shenandoah revolves around their forcible removal or their eviction by the federal government, but this was truly a state project, in part because the National Park Service, the Department of the Interior, did not want to be holding the bag when people rejected uh, the creation of parks and forests or parks on their land. Um, they were wiser and I suppose more savvy than that, and yet they ended up being in many ways the scapegoats um, as public attention and in some cases hostility was directed against park projects. Um, both the um, Great Smokies, and many of you, or some of you may have read the book Cades Cove or heard of it, this sort of community of established farmers in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park that the people were moved out but their farms were allowed to remain as sort of a window into um, historic agriculture and land use, um, which is another point of, uh, a focal point of critiques of park creation. So, like I said, Walter Jenkins was told that he was not making a living on his farm. He was told that he could not stay in the mountains and that his land was needed for a greater purpose, for the benefit of the American people more generally. And here is his way of arguing against that by saying, you know, I can make a living here. I can raise my family. Please give me the chance to stay. I don't know any other way. And we see a lot of that language um, coming out of this moment. Um, and w the thing that I think is most interesting about that, that sort of reaction is that the planning for the park was both intended to conserve the land and to uplift the people. 
And so that project of social uplift from the time the people were quote unquote identified in the mountains was woven into the park narrative. Um, and yet there was a tension between the people on the ground who chose to live the way they had always lived and the vision of a better way that was applied by rural sociologists and government planners, both at the state and the national level. And that tension over who's going to make decisions about your land and your life for you, I think, resonate um, even today in the context of environmental protections and conservation. Here, I, I mentioned George Freeman Pollock before. You may, he may look familiar to you, even if you've never seen him. Um, he styled himself very much in the sort of genre of the Western man. Um, his, you know, one of his heroes was Theodore Roosevelt, also an Easterner who took on the buckskin and the whip as a means of um, sort of mas emma not emasculating himself, making himself more masculine. <laughs> Inmasculine, whatever. Anyway, you know what I'm saying. Um, Pollock was also was a, a very small man, also, um, and. Um, had moved to the mountains. Uh, his father had actually owned a copper mine in the uh, Blue Ridge back in the 1850s and 60s, and that it had been abandoned um, because there didn't seem to be a, a valuable copper se seam um, on the property, which was a couple thousand acres. Well, Pollock was an amateur zoologist and a taxidermist, and so as a young man, as an adolescent really, he went out to his father's mountains and um, became enraptured by the beauty of the Blue Ridge and convinced his father and a couple of investors to allow him to create basically a campsite for Washingtonians and Baltimoreans um, and the, the sort of people looking to escape from urban areas in the mountains as opposed to the shore during this period. And Pollock eventually built up a rather sizable facility, which is the basis of today's um, Skyland. Um, Skyland Lodge had a water system and a number of cabins, a nice mess hall, um, hiking trails and riding trails, et cetera, by the 1920s. And he sought to preserve the scenery of the Blue Ridge beyond his life, um, in part by partnering with the Commonwealth of Virginia and the federal government to create a park in the Blue Ridge. He, he was holding a bugle, yes, he was famous for bugling um, all sorts of calls <laughs> over the course of the day. He was really um, quite a character, actually, and we'll get into a little bit of that later. But yes, he, um, he loved to perform, and he um, loved a good show, and so was quite a showman. Um, he also used the nature of the place as a means of um, exciting attention. And so he loved to take people on camping trips, and that was one of the sort of parts of um, life at Skyland. And you see this nice little bonfire. It's early evening. Actually, it might be, it's morning, I think, actually. Um, but there's a relatively small camping party, men and women. Um, children were welcome as well. They brought um, everything they could possibly need. This is this Skyline Lodge was catering to an affluent clientele, people who could afford to either spend, send their families to the mountains for the summer or um, go themselves. And so it was doctors and lawyers, um, government officials, um, publishers, people like that. 
So Pollock used both showmanship and subterfuge in some cases to promote his mountains. And so here is one of the famous Skyland bonfires. Now, mind you, George Freeman Pollock was protecting the mountains from the ravages of the mountaineers, okay? This bonfire contained 300 cords of wood. It was 50 feet in diameter. And f oh, no, I'm sorry, 40 feet in diameter and 50 feet tall. And this is one of the famous uh, Fourth of July bonfires, and it was doused in gasoline. And when set alight, it, the flames reached about 100 feet tall. Okay, so he is, I mean, he is representative of his time, right? He's sort of stewarding the resources of the mountains as a mean, and he did really believe that. And yet today we're like, 300 cords of wood, couldn't you have done that with like a couple of old buildings? <laughs> so there is, of course, a tension there inherent within, in, his, uh, in his vision for the park. But I can criticize him all I want. He, in fact, um, was incredibly influential in both uh, drawing the attention of uh, the Shenandoah, or excuse me, the S Southern Appalachian National Park Commission, which identified uh, the sites in the Blue Ridge and the Great Smoky Mountains, but also keeping momentum going so that Virginia continued to try to raise money for the park and then actually implemented um, the purchase of land and the sale or the donation eventually to the federal government. So he did have a really important role in helping to create the park. Here are a couple of the other park nuts. That is not my term. That is his. L. Ferdinand Zirkel, one of the most colorful of all of the park promoters, who basically started off as a real estate agent in Luray in the 1920s and then moved um, into sort of the, the purchase of uh, land both voluntarily and by through the condemnation or eminent domain by the state in the later 20s. And then he moved into the federal government as an um, official for the subsistence homesteads in the 1930s. So you, you may recognize this guy. Anybody know who he is? Harry Flood Bird. Here's William Carson, um, the first director of the State Conservation and Development Commission. And these are, and this is Arno Kammerer, who was at the time the assistant director of the National Park Service and later came to direct the National Park Service and was among the most vehement critics of the scum of the mountain people who lived in the, in the Shenandoah. Um, so there's a lot of social baggage that ended up getting built um, into the creation of the park, both on the part of um, state officials and federal officials. Um, Camera really looked at the sort of conservation of scenery as being um, preeminent in terms of the project. And there were m many other people, I would suggest, who were more sensitive to the, the mountain people themselves. I mentioned before the, Shannon, or the Southern Appalachian National Park Commission. These are the guys who basically went out um, in search of appropriate parklands, because this all occurred in the context of a national park system that was located exclusively to the west of the Mississippi River. And there were people in the United States, throughout the United States, and in the National Park Service and the Department of the Interior, who believed that there was no scenery in the east worthy of national park status. Now, I know, this is an audience that would, would be horrified by that presumption, and of course, it is not true. But remember that all of the land in the east, virtually everything, was private land. Whereas the parks and forests of the West were created out of the public domain. And so nobody had to sell land 
to the federal government in the West to create the great national land system, if you will, that we enjoy. And so what happened in the 1920s and 30s is a really major shift, well, really teens, if you talk about national forests, is a major shift in the way Americans thought about the responsibility of government in, in regards to conserving vulnerable lands and beautiful scenery. And this is a sea change that both predates the New Deal and represents a new, uh, sort of a new mentality about land use and about resources that I think should sound familiar to a lot of you today. This is a very progressive idea that by conserving forest lands, you can protect watersheds. By preserving soils, you can maintain fertility. And this is all playing out not only in agriculture and in forestry, but also in the world of conservation during the 19 teens and 20s and 30s. And it all culminates, I would argue, in the 1930s when the money became available to actually begin to put these ideas into practice. Um, the federal government negotiated a great deal with the Commonwealth of Virginia in the early 1930s in order to make the park happen. They had to modify the congressional demands for a park. They had to reduce the acreage for the park. And then they had to sort of help out in certain ways um, with the, the culmination of the park, with the sort of completion of the project. Um, and that became possible in large part because a new administration with a new mindset came into office. And we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit. So I mentioned before evictions and the fact that there aren't always, there weren't many evictions, but the ones that occurred were in fact um, quite both well publicized and politically fraught. And so this is my favorite park resident, Malakthanon, that's his name, Kleiser. Um, who owned a uh, gasoline stand and a small farm and a store along Lee Highway, so one of the access points to the park. And Kleiser, from the very beginning of the park project, was its most, uh, let's say, dramatic opponent. He wrote to the Supreme Court, he wrote to the president, he wrote to the governors, he wrote to local officials, he did everything that he could to argue that this park was not necessary, it was not appropriate. Um, as he wrote in 1926, very early in the process, this park business has been gotten up by Mr. Pollock, proprietor of Skyland Summer Resort, and a few large landowners who have cut the timber and left the land entirely worthless. And then he said, you know, my land is being taken up in this park because you need some decent land in order to counteract or counterbalance all of the worthless land that people are selling. And Kleiser and some of the other opponents of the park really believed that this was a political move on the part of a couple of people to both benefit from the federal interest in creating new parks as a means of sort of boosting their own fortunes with the idea that resorts both in the mountains and in the uh, sort of boundary areas would begin to cater to tourists and bring in a great deal of money in the future. And Pollock himself expected that Skyland Lodge would be allowed to remain open and that he would be allowed to continue running it once the federal government took ownership of the land, which of course did not happen, um, much to his dismay. Although his wife was allowed to keep her house um, at Skyland until her death. Um, 
again, like I said earlier, one of the, the narratives in the early rationale for creating the park was that there weren't people living here. Well, here is a parcel map showing the 1,088 parcels that were purchased by the Commonwealth of Virginia in order to create the park. And as you see, some of them were huge, um, and some of them were small. These Madison County areas were right down here and so contained some of the smaller parcels. But there were orchards, there were um, grazing lands that were owned by um, affluent stockmen of the Shenandoah Valley. They sent their livestock up into the mountains to graze some of the the balds or the meadows on the top of the mountains, and those were some of the larger land holdings that you see here. Um, and then there were just you know small parcels owned by people like Pollock's father and his business partners that had sort of been speculative enterprises at the outset and proven to be not much. Some of those lands were inhabited and some were not. Um, but ultimately, some 400 people were were 550, I think it was moved out of the mountains in order to create the park because the Park Service does not allow people to live um, on lands it manages, unlike the U.S. Forest Service. So by uh, July of 1936, the federal government had well, had con completed its negotiations uh, with the Commonwealth of Virginia and had uh, in court, the Supreme Court had resolved a case um, brought to it ultimately by a Pennsylvania orchardist who owned some land in the mountains um, by the name of Robert Villa, who had argued that the condemnation of lands by this Commonwealth of Virginia was unconstitutional. They used um, unconstitutional methods. And the Supreme Court ultimately in the fall of 1935 refused to rule on the district court's decision against Villa, which basically opened the way for the Department of the Interior to accept the deed to the national park in December of 1935. And so on July 3rd of 1936, the Shenandoah National Park was dedicated, and this of course is just a picture of the sign marking the north entrance, but it shows the sort of aesthetic of the moment and um, sort of marks the transition, if you will, to the new park. And the Shenandoah region, the Blue Ridge in particular, became the target of a variety of CCC projects, the Civilian Conservation Corps, both reforestation and land clearing, um, as well as construction of new recreational areas and roadways that I'll talk about momentarily. The work relief project in the park, however, began under uh, Herbert Hoover, who had located his Rapidan camp, his summer White House, along the Rapidan River. Um, in the sort of southeastern part of the park. And Hoover was, in many ways, one of the biggest proponents of the park. He and his wife built um, a school for some of the children in the, their community who didn't have access to a school. They um, conducted relief campaigns to help raise money and supplies for the families that they encountered, who were, um, in some cases, really quite poorly off. But Hoover believed that the, this is something that we don't talk about so often, that the role of the federal government in sort of helping to facilitate relief um, needed to expand even as early as 1931. And so he proposed using unemployed farmers um, and sort of under, um, well, people who were suffering from the great southeastern drought of 1931 and 32 
to help build a new road along the crest of the Blue Ridge, which is what we now know as Skyline Drive. That was his idea. Um, and it ended up coming uh, to its fruition under Roosevelt, but those two presidents really believed in the road project um, and helped to push it forward. So the roots of conservation, arguably, emerged under Hoover. So we talked briefly earlier about the American chestnut. Here are some of the ghost trees that the CCC helped to clear because the Shenandoah, the Blue Ridge region, um, was covered by up to about 40% um, by the American chestnut, and so the decimation of the chestnut population in the teens and 20s, really the aughts and teens, had a really measurable and horrific impact on the landscape of the Blue Ridge. And so these ghost trees were some of the areas that were cleaned up, if you will, and improved um, by the Civilian Conservation Corps. Like I said, the, um, even before the New Deal and then during the New Deal, the federal government built the Skyline Drive, um, both opening the mountains to a new class of people um, and, of course, cutting a line right through the wilderness they were trying to protect. Um, and so that, that sort of story of the tension between preserving the landscape and offering access to recreation is at the heart of the Shenandoah Project. Um, and I'm not going to talk much about that today, but I'd be happy to talk with anybody after. Uh, my presentation is over. And so the Skyline Drive is a parkway in the clouds, was and is, um, a lovely, lovely road that um, I have seen plenty of black bear run across, um, because, and turkeys walk across, and um, because it is in the middle of a protected forest where hunting is illegal, and I don't even think fishing is allowed in the Shenandoah, although it is allowed in other national parks. Roosevelt, however, was a great proponent of the, the, the Shenandoah Park, both um, because of its ability to help conserve the human resources of young America, these men who enrolled in the CCC and were able to open a whole new world um, after a, a, you know, sort of much of a lifetime of poverty and despair. And so this luncheon at Big Meadows was used as both, uh, you know, a photo op. This this image is on the cover of was on the cover of the New York Times, but it was also a means of celebrating the potential, the human potential, of the American people in the mid '30s, as well as the value of conservation um, for national development. Um, I'm going to skip over this one because I want to sort of get into the federal land use planning angle on the park. Um, which involved a mixture of projects, including um, rationalizing agriculture, moving farms from poor lands to more viable lands. Um, it involved conserving poor land and turning it to better uses, like parks or wildlife refuges or um, seashores. And it involved uplifting poor people um, who had been living and suffering, um, New Deal planners believed on submarginal lands, and that was sort of a catchphrase of the period. Um, we see that in this poster for the Resettlement Administration from the Dust Bowl, of course, but this is very much um, a Dust Bowl and a Plains project as well as a national project um, that argues that the federal government at this point was moving into both rescuing victims, a pretty specific term, and restoring the land to proper use. 
the idea that expertise and experts were able to identify better ways as a means of improving the national economy and improving the standard of living for all people. And that was a very um, progressive idea in the, term, in the context of the progressive era, but in terms of sort of this vision of the world is constantly improving. And so here was a place that not so much science, but um, planners could help um, raise the standard of living for the uh, entire population. And the way that happened in the Shenandoah case is here is uh, Ida Valley Homesteads outside of Luray. And the Resettlement Administration and later the Farm Security Administration essentially built these small houses and moved the people who agreed to you know, cede control of their mountain lands in onto these farms. They bought them land, um, they gave them tools and equipment and livestock, and they essentially uh, sent extension agents to help raise the level of agricultural practice. And the idea was that these people would be given a whole new lease on life by getting access to this more fertile, more viable agricultural land. And some people were thrilled at the opportunity to move to the lowlands, and other people were less excited about um, leaving the mountains for the valleys. Um, and in fact, today, many of these subsistence homesteads communities are um, inhabited by people who have summer homes or weekend homes or um, no connection at all to this uplift project. Many of the families who moved to the subsistence homesteads actually left relatively quickly. Um, one of the most unusual legacies of this process was that by 1976, the Shenandoah National Park was declared part of the federal wilderness system. Um, because, as Senator Frank Church had said in 1972, it represented a case where um, the federal government was able to, quote, dedicate formerly abused areas where the primeval scene can be restored by natural forces. And so through the influence of both the CCC and uh, land managers and the creation of this protected area, the idea was nature could reassert itself and hikers and backpackers and even car campers could experience primeval nature once again by the late 20th century. And the wilderness legislation reflects the tension that had emerged, as I mentioned earlier, between um, development and preservation between car campers and backpackers. So here's what the Shenandoah looks like today. We see basically a patchwork of forest surrounded by development. And of course, um, the Shenandoah National Park is one of the landscapes that is feared to be loved to death um, by the American people. It is speckled with a few um, remaining um, mountaineer cabins, if you will, that were selected um, by the Park Service in the 30s and 40s for protection. Um, I saw another black bear just on the stream uh, to the left of this picture. I think he was more scared than we were as we came across him drinking at the stream. It was amazing. This poor guy um, sort of bobbled. He stumbled in the stream, fell over on a boulder, and then raced into the woods. It was my first black bear. I was scared out of my wits, but he was definitely more afraid than I was. And so there's that beautiful juxtaposition of nature and culture um, that this park is able to provide to a resident of Washington um, with a close drive. So here we are looking out over the Piedmont, enjoying the beauty of the scenery. 
And yet here is a poem I encountered in one of the local cemeteries that's been protected, preserved by the Park Service, which of course they all are. And you, um, I'll read you a couple of passages from it. Can you see it in the back? Can you read the words? It's called Where the Mountains Are Blue. And it reads, enter these here blue mountains and enjoy Skyline's view. Woo, excuse me. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> That was actually my timer, not my phone. Sample the streams and fountains, but don't forget the sacrifice that was made for you. Um, to tell of a people who once resided on this land, who toiled, labored, loved, laughed and cried, having their lives altered by a plan, and whose story, their quotes, not mine, whose stories many untold shall never die. And so there is this deep melancholy and nostalgia associated with the families that left the mountains. Um, some by choice and some without their choice. And so I'll leave you with this scene from Old Rag Mountain in 2001, conveying what does in fact look like a wilderness in the heart of civilized America. That is both the beauty of conservation planning and the result of trade-offs made by the government and the people um, in the process. Thank you. So I'd be happy to take questions if there are any. To what extent did the depression have an impact on these other uh, forces coming together in the establishment of the park? You know, it definitely contributed in a really important way. I mean, economic crisis can either leave, lead depending, I think, on its severity, to increased conservatism or more radical, if you will, approaches to problems. And so we see the opportunity um, presented by the Depression in terms of um, the federal government's ability to step in and appropriate quantities of money that were never before imagined for relief projects and for conservation projects that I don't think necessarily would have happened otherwise. Although there was, I, I talk about this at length in, in the book, that there was a tremendous groundswell both in the academy and in the federal government from the 19-teens on and especially in the 1920s as experts and planners got jobs um, and rose to a certain level in the academy that allowed them to create white papers and policy prescriptions that did involve a new role for government and for the state, um, both national and states, um, at the national and state level, to step in to solve these seemingly insurmountable social and ecological and economic problems. So it helped. Um, it helped the cause of the planners um, and I don't think we would have seen the same scale of conservation planning and social reform without the, the crisis of the Depression. Um, but it allowed that sort of milieu to gain a foothold. So we have time for one more, one more question. Okay. It'll be right here. Um, thank you. Um, historians have written quite a bit about the, the expulsion and exclusion of Native Americans mm -hmm. from parks in the West. Right. 
And um, I was wondering if you could contrast briefly uh, the federal government's touch here in, in Shenandoah um, versus, you know, its treatment of, of native people who had often used and occupied these areas for for centuries. Was it was it lighter, or you know, you, you suggested that um, some of the rhetoric that was used to describe these mountain folk was you know, shot through with sort of stereotypes and things like that. Sure. So that's a great question. And in fact, there are a lot of at least superficial parallels. At first, when I started. Um, working on this project, I thought, oh my gosh, it's the same thing. And yet, what I realized was sort of the, the trajectory of development in the Shenandoah and the Smokies, frankly, was much more tied up in state boosters, really. It was an economic project on the part of the state rather than a, um, an attempt by the federal government specifically to, um, well, obviously, the Western parks were not specifically an attempt to move Native peoples, but they were caught up in that bigger um, dynamic. And there are, like I said, parallels. But it, um, the language is similar. The approach, these, these, these mountain people, what they called, some people called mountaineers, were portrayed as Elizabethan folks who spoke Chaucer's English, who you know, slept with their brothers and um, married their cousins and you know, ate worms. I don't think I ever read about eating worms, but who really were sort of living on the margins of a human existence. And so that same dehumanization did emerge periodically, I think mostly in response to political pressures about the park project. You know, the language supporting the park changed over the course of its development as its, the various challenges evolved. But there's a lot of similarity. Yeah, thank you. Well, thank you, everybody.